0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live. My name's Derek Arden. I'm delighted that you've joined us on a cold, wintry day in Guildford, in uh, Surrey. Tonight, I've got uh, Vince Pocenti with me. But first of all, my friend Tim Durkin is going to introduce Vince because both Tim and Vince have had amazing careers and have amazing knowledge. So it's going to be a very exciting evening today with all sorts of issues coming up. Over to you,
1: Tim. In. Texas. Well, thank you very much, Derek, and it is my pleasure to introduce my friend, my colleague, my mentor. um, In some cases, my idol, um, Vince Pacente. Um, I've known Vince for over 20 years. We met at the Speak National Speakers Association, and I just I could say a lot of things about Vince, but I want to turn all the minutes I can back to him. I will only say that he is truly a world traveler. I think the first time he went around the world, he backpacked after high school. Um, He also is an adventurer. He has climbed several mountains, been the first human to summit some mountains, which gave him the privilege uh, and the honor of being able to name that mountain any name that he wanted and he named it after very significant uh people uh relatively unknown people um he at one time uh he he has flown airplanes gliders um mountaineered and at one time he decided that he was going to enter the olympics And so he entered downhill skiing. When I say downhill, I mean straight. It's called speed skiing. And he reached a speed of 217 kilometers per hour. Uh, That was the fastest anybody had ever gone on skis. That record held up for decades. Um, In order to practice that, you, you you really can't get a feeling for what would happen to you at temperatures over 160 kilometers per hour. So, in order to find out what that felt like, uh, Vince did what any normal person would do. He put a ski rack on a sports car, clamped uh, clamped skis into the ski rack, and then got into the skis and had his friend drive 100 miles per hour. It did result in a trip to the jail, um, which is kind of interesting (laughs) to to show up in jail when you are wearing um, a speed suit made out of some space-age material that when you're out of the speed suit, the suit itself would fit a two-year-old. This is not an outfit you want to go to jail with, especially when it is almost all pink. Um, But... (laughs) That that is Vince. Um Brilliant. but w- when I say Vince, and b- by the way, Vince plays at a very high level of ice hockey, uh, plays with former professional players. Um, but um, and I think this is part of the reason we were talking last week. I think it's part of the reason he reacted so quickly because he cannot um uh, resist a big scrum. Um, but nonetheless, um Vince is going to tell you his story where he won't say it, but I'll say it, that he actually saved the life uh, of Salman Rushdie. And, um, and then he disappeared into anonymity, which is just the way that he likes it. Um, but it's a, it's a story that he was prepared for. I'll also finally say he has several books. The Earthquake is his latest one. The Ant and the Elephant is the other one. That is a favorite book of the American basketball legend star, whatever lebron james he keeps it on his coffee table in his den um and uh it, he's actually pictured in sports illustrated with that so without further ado i would just like to um introduce you to the most interesting man i've ever met and probably one of my very best friends um Vince Pacente. thanks tim that's that's brilliant um Vince,
0: I think we should start, after that introduction, I think we should start with when you were 26 and you were a recreational skier and you decided that you were going to get, you were going to go into the Olympics. What was Uh that all about?
2: Yeah, uh, it's not a normal decision to decide to go to the Olympic Games in a sport you have no knowledge of. I mean, I, I was a recreational skier. But a little backstory on that, I had raced in luge, which is similar to bobsled, but you're laying on your back on a sled, And but I quit. And having quit the sport of luge uh, was the, re- the reason behind it was it made no sense. I mean, I, I was fascinated by the Olympics, but I just decided the national team coach said I really didn't have a chance and I believed her, and so I quit. Um, the people that I was standing with when told us the same message uh, didn't quit. And at the opening ceremonies in the Olympics in Calgary, I watched them marching with the Olympic team and I was in the stands with a ticket, right? And this, it's part of the human condition, Derek. It's, it's, it's we're motivated by discomfort very often. It's not just the, the aspirational notion of getting to the Olympic games is this story is I never wanted the feeling of regret to that level again. And uh, so that's why I stepped into speed skiing. It would be a demonstration sport in the Olympics four years after the Olympics in Calgary. Uh, you remember your uh, British icon, Eddie the Eagle, do, uh, those yeah. Olympic Games in Calgary, right? Um And so I just decided to step into the sport and see if I could get, just have no regret that I didn't try. I knew it was unlikely that I would get to the Olympic Games. But in that journey to get to the Olympics in Alberville, in 92 Olympics, I came up with a, a mental training strategy, basically terrified that I wouldn't qualify for the Olympic team. And in Canada, the Olympic qualifying standards are top 16 in the world. So not only did I aspire to get to the Olympic Games but I was also trying to get into the top 16, so I would qualify for the Olympic team, and uh, ended up after two and a half years being ranked 10th in the world. So this mental training program then parlayed over to the corporate landscape when I became a speaker and author. You came from a country where there's loads of snow. Eddie the Eagle, as you
0: mentioned him, you know right. he just uh, took a punt. There's no snow here. He just uh, just a yeah.
2: crazy guy. Did you meet him? I did meet him in Calgary in a bar no less which is where I meet mo- most british people actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so um so you got into the you got into the uh, canadian team. I think you said you came 15th didn't you? 15th? I was 15th in the olympics in alberville yeah. Mm-hmm. And why did you go that fast? I can't understand that. Is that a normal speed that people go skiing or did you go to break the speed record rather than yeah. You know, there's a bit of twisting and turning isn't there even on
2: downhill skiing in the alps certainly in downhill or all the slalom and all that there's all turns but speed skiing is different in that both timing lights are at the bottom so all the other ski disciplines have a, a timing light at the top and the bottom and then the fastest time is the winner in speed skiing that those timing lights are 100 meters apart and so you go zero to 60 miles an hour and th- Three seconds in the first three seconds and up to over 125 miles an hour, 200 kilometers an hour in eight seconds. Uh, Darth Vader style helmet, as Tim mentioned, that skin tight rubber suit and uh, go straight down the side of the mountain. And so, if you're the fastest person through the speed trap, uh, then you won. Uh, and each, we in the Olympics, for example, we started with a field of 89. And then there's qualification runs and the field gets smaller and smaller as you move further and further up the mountain.
0: Uh, thanks for explaining that. I guess that's why it's not shown on television that much, because it's not very interesting for the TV cameras.
2: And not, not unless people crash, and <laughs> that's what they're looking for. Why aren't there more crashes? <laughs> so. Gee whiz. Um, let's switch to uh, Salman
0: Rushdie. Tell us about that. I know that was the 12th of August, and you were in New York City sitting in the front row. Yeah.
2: What happened? I was actually, it was New York State. It was a very small town called Chautauqua. We have an, uh, an artist here, Norman Rockwell. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, um, but uh, he's kind of this idyllic setting, the American uh, nostalgia. And uh, it was straight out of one of his pieces of art. I mean, there was just this quiet community. I was actually, had never been there. Uh, by chance had gone with a bunch of uh, artists for a retreat, and we were there, authors and filmmakers. And I was the only one put up my hand when somebody said, Who wants to see a Solomon Rushdie speak? And I went, I would. I mean, that would be fascinating. So I ended up getting there early. I was alone, and, and the front row was open. So I sat in the front row, and not 10 seconds into him being introduced, uh, somebody jumped on stage and started stabbing him. And um, I just realized that he needed help, and um, jumping on stage was a, um, a moment in time that I did. You know, you heard people say, oh, you didn't think you just acted. No, There's, there was a guy with a knife, and I knew that he had a knife, but I also knew that Mr. Rushdie needed help, so I jumped on stage. There were two other gentlemen on either side of me who also jumped on stage. We were all about the same age, roughly. And um, we pulled the attacker off Mr. Rushdie. And then those who were backstage went to Mr. Rushdie's aid and, you know, he had a lot of bleeding in his neck and um, then the police came over and handcuffed the guy. So then I wasn't needed anymore. And they asked everybody to leave. And so I thought, yeah, it's probably going to be a bit of a a circus here if I stick around. So I left as well. um, And then went back to our retreat with all the authors and, filmmakers and all that and had to break the news to them so I don't know it it was a it was a moment in time he needed help and uh, I feel like I played a part in saving his life so well congratulations but what did your family think about uh, you rushing on stage uh, just like that I think everybody's reaction was uh, pretty universal Uh, they couldn't believe it (laughs) because it was so random Um, that was in the late 80s that he was the fatwa was put on his head for the bounty on his head for I think it was three million dollars so that's a long time to to be under that kind of threat Uh, and some some of my family members didn't know um, didn't even know who Solomon Rushdie was but uh, yeah it was a a news item and uh, and he was on death's door there for a while but anyway so to be part of that solution the universal question, Derek, was was actually um, introspective. People wondered if they would have gone on stage, right? If they would have jumped to his aid as well. And uh, that's a, a question worth saying. What did I have a death wish? Was it did I have any experience stopping an attack or wielding a knife? No, <laughs> I mean, but there was a certain my past, as Tim kind of mentioned, was full of all sorts of experiences of of stepping into uncertainty and i feel maybe i was somewhat comfortable with that uh risk that was in front of all of us Mm -hmm. and you didn't have any military training like tim for handling things like this no tim actually had introduced me to aikido and and tim will say you know i got up to my purple belt i don't know how high tim got but uh uh yeah in aikido i i immediately used some of those aikido principles tim i don't know if we talked about that but uh uh, there was some muscle memory in terms of, you know, making sure I was stable. And, and when I was pulling the attacker, when I pulled the attacker, I grabbed him by the collar and just yanked him back and then dragged him and everybody kind of fell on top of him as well. So I was dragging this mass of humanity and realizing I might be pulling him out from underneath all these people jumping on him. So, uh, the Aikido came in handy.
0: Okay. That's fantastic. Now, let's talk about uh, your books. Let's talk about what you do on stage as an inspirational and motivational speaker. Your first book uh, was The Ant and the Elephant, and your latest book's The Earthquake, which is uh, on the on the wall. Tell us yeah. about that, and one of the, and a couple of the questions we were already getting is, tell us about your mental strategy for the skiing, and I guess that's
2: kind of come out of the book. Yeah, um, all interconnected. Uh, there's a gentleman out of Vancouver, Canada named Dr. Lee Poulos. And with research he found in a second of time, your conscious mind is processing with 2000 neurons. So all of us on this call are processing maybe what I have to say. Your conscious mind is thinking so-and-so might be, it might be interesting for them to hear this. They might wanna know more about the Salman Rushdie thing. They might, you might be thinking, I look like a a character from the Pixar movie Up. I don't know, (laughs) whatever you're thinking. Uh, is 2000 neurons in a second. In the same second, the subconscious mind is processing with 4 billion neurons with a B. And that's subconscious, below consciousness. So the ratio of the conscious and subconscious mind is the exact same ratio between an ant and an elephant. So the ant is on the back of the elephant. The ant is making decisions on direction You want to go consciously. That's called willpower. I want to go in this direction with my business, my family life, my personal life, my relationships, my financial, you know, situation. But the subconscious mind might be headed in a different direction. So to consciously say, I want to go on a diet, but the subconscious mind says, I don't think so. (laughs) You end up in a different place. And so this parable of the ant and the elephant is about how they align to create the ant and the elephant going in the same direction. And the formula, the prescriptive model in the book, The Ant and the Elephant, is the exact same formula I used to go from recreational skier to the gold medal round in the Olympic Games in four years. Now, that book isn't about that. I don't share the Olympic story really at all in the book. Um, But it was very prescriptive and linear in nature. And that was in 2003. And then uh, just actually almost exactly a year ago, the earthquake came out. And it's a sequel, if you will, but it's not like a movie sequel where if you saw the first one, you know what the second one's about. This one's called The Earthquake. The ant and the elephant experience an earthquake and find out very quickly. The opening line of the book is there's no linear way out of chaos. This is not a prescriptive formula to get from where you are to where you want to go when you've experienced a divorce or bankruptcy or cancer or losing a child. I mean, an earthquake because the elephant, the subconscious mind gets pounded by doubt and uncertainty. Maybe childhood wounds surface. Maybe there's all sorts of new uh, dysfunction or discord that's happening at, at a very subconscious level of some basically surrounding fear. And your conscious mind is trying to get out of this earthquake, trying to get unstuck. But if you've ever gone through an earthquake you know exactly what i'm talking about this this feeling of being paralyzed like you can't move forward and that gets worse it's insidious in nature there's this vortex of d- doubt uh, and so it's the same parable formula meaning the ant and the elephant go through an earthquake how do they journey out of this earthquake uh, but also i made it a very story forward book meaning i wanted it to be a page turner just on the story alone so uh tim i believe you've read the book i think i have yeah yeah so ho- hopefully it, it was a, a a standalone the story itself is intriguing enough to turn the pages but uh again it, instead of a prescriptive formula it's very much a well i call it the solution loop being able to if i had to simplify it is does this work 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 just start constantly in that solution loop of trying to get out of get traction out of this stuckness
0: which is the uh, which is the most negative the conscious mind or the unconscious mind and which is the one that wakes us up at three o'clock in the morning with an idea oh the subconscious
2: mind is it's a it's a combination of clever and a real pain in the ass (laughs) The, the subconscious mind can can have made up its mind about what is true uh, if you do any uh, kind of research along the lines of the cognitive model, um, here's here's the way we think. If we see a result that we're not happy with, we automatically default to what do I do in order to get a different result? So actions lead to results uh, action inaction leads to results. <laughs> And uh, if there's negative actions, you go, well, I'll just change those negative actions. If you're not looking at the source of those actions, which is very much a combination of the conscious and the subconscious mind, uh, but at a subconscious mind, we can have beliefs and attitudes and truths that are subconscious below our conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we don't know. And so having a shift in belief, attitudes, and truths, that, those beliefs, attitudes, and truths are a filter. So information comes at us, and at a very subconscious and conscious level, we filter that information and then judge that. And most of this judgment is subconscious. From that judgment, we will then act and then get a result. So until you have a shift in beliefs, attitudes, and truths at a subconscious level, that's that's tricky. Uh, and with the Olympic formula, if you will, in the ant and the elephant, there was um, uh, having a shift of a belief attitude and attitude of truth that it's impossible to get to the Olympic Games in four years from today in a sport you had no rec- knowledge of. But I created a new truth. And here are two facts you'll gravitate to that which you believe to be true, and you'll gravitate to your dominant thought. Mm-hmm. Is your truth a default? Do you just have a truth because that's the truth? Or are you the architect for that truth? are you the architect for your dominant thought or is the dominant thought coming at you through whatever you, you, you get information coming in through media, through a screen, through uh, uh, a negative spouse. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever your dominant thought is, are you the architect for that dominant thought or are you just uh, almost a victim to that dominant thought? So, yeah
0: how many people are victims what are the stats on that do you think i only want you to guess but you know we're bombarded by negative news we were bombarded by uh, brexit we're bombarded by unconscious bias as well particularly right. at the moment um, yeah
2: I, gosh you know the first number that came to mind is we're bombarded uh, 80% of our day is somebody else's agenda <laughs> right <laughs> somebody else's uh input is is trying to you know, we've got an uncle staying here uh, an in-law you know we were Ava is it Ava you're we talking about the in-laws <laughs> well yep. he, yeah he's all over the conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff and he's I just walked by he's 70 I don't know eight years old and over here it's called Fox News Robert Murdoch's uh and uh they've got an agenda that media. Sh- program tv program has an agenda and in the morning at the programmers meeting they go okay here here are our talking points we're going to push this push this push this so they're the source of the dominant thought for this uncle right yeah. and that's all he watches so guess what is he the architect for his dominant thought or is he the victim of, of somebody else's agenda and uh, you decide i'm not going to past judgment but i think i just did (laughs) i think (laughs) so yeah the the beauty of this
0: program is that we've probably got 20 people on here who are really positive and most of us don't watch or listen to the news first thing in the morning because we don't want our unconscious mind programmed by other people's uh, negativity but i guess uh, we're really unusual really unusual on that and um, yeah it's very difficult isn't it not to get programmed
2: by that so. and we're all we're all we're all susceptible to that we're, we're humans right we you know we always always i'm personally always checking in is this a bias that i've come up with or is this a bias that is as a result of the the garbage in garbage out kind of thing um so i'm always personally checking in on where's my and this afternoon i'm i'm a host of this tv program Called Perspectives Matter, uh, and um, as a journalist, you know I'm a part-time journalist. I can't have a bias. I, I just cannot. It's not part of the my job of integrity, and uh, so I'm always checking in.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay. So um, how? So tell me. I haven't seen you speak, unfortunately. I'm looking forward to that uh, at some stage. I guess one of the things you do with your audience is try and get them to change their unconscious biases and show them a way to now, I don't know whether you do or not, but it sounds like that's exactly what you might be doing.
2: It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say a pipe fitter association hires me to speak to them, you know, uh, I would do research on what's happening in the pipe theater industry, you know, what's supply chain happening, what are leadership, is, is management able to actually get through to a workforce that wants to be remote, is there, uh, you know, all these different things, and then um, I, there's a central theme to pretty much everything that I do with these speeches, and it was what I learned as an athlete. What we're all doing, whatever industry we're in, we identify who our competition is and we default to, we have to do what the competition's not doing so that the business comes to us so that we win that share of wallet. Uh, At the exact same time, the competition's trying to do what you're not doing. So you kind of have this level playing field of duking it out for the same dollar. Uh, you can unlevel the playing field by using what I was, had to do as an athlete. Because I walked into uh, a, an existing situation where there were athletes who had the same intention of getting to the Olympic Games, to be top 16 in the world in, on the Canadian team, to uh, be one of those people that would compete in the Olympics in Albertville in a demonstration sport where there are gold, silver, bronze medals. Uh, And they have been doing it for 20 years, 25 years, right? So how do you compete, do what the competition is not doing when they had a 25-year head start? And the default was to do what the competition is not willing to do. And at no time did I identify the competition. If I was in a local race, right, with all these local racers, at no time was I racing against them. I was racing metaphorically mentally against the top 16 in the world and i was constantly asking you constantly ask yourself what is what are the top 16 racers in the world not willing to do that's when you start to come up with some innovative competitive strategies and unlevel the playing field where they have to run uphill the whole time to catch up and um I even had competition ask me what I was doing. And I'd say, well, I'm biofeedback, sensory deprivation, float tanks, hypnosis programs, visualization and imagery, experientialization. I would make up words. <laughs> and it was all to create a new truth that I am the fastest in Canada, top 10 in the world. I, I use gold dots. Every time I had a gold dot, where did it go? Oh, here it is. So every time I, I put a gold dot on a piece of paper, on a computer monitor and the odometer in my car on my cell phone I would see that gold dot and it would trigger a dominant thought which is I am the fastest speed in Canada top 10 in the world and I repeated that over you'll gravitate to your you're the architect for your dominant thought and I'm the fastest speed in Canada top 10 in the world you will gravitate to that which you believe to be true so why not be the architect for that truth uh, the way you make something true, just saying it doesn't, it just skims the surface. Um, bringing an experience, because if you're marching in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, if you hear them announce that you're marching in, if you feel the ground underneath your feet, you smell the smells associated with that uh, taste. I, rem- I remember experiencing, in my imagination, eating a chocolate chip oatmeal cookie, Right. <laughs> because it would be, they don't have food at the opening ceremonies, and you're hungry all the time, and so, uh, yeah, and when I marched in the opening ceremonies, I forgot my cookie. I didn't have my cookie with me, but that's okay. I qualified for the Olympic team, and I got separated from uh, the ski team, and I was in amongst all the Canadian hockey players who are monsters. These people have the height of a hobbit, really, <laughs> and this hockey player sitting there turns to me we're watching the opening ceremonies and say do you want a cookie (laughs) i went what he says yeah my mom made cookies do you want a cookie so i i think it's the book the alchemist where i think there's a line out of there it says if you want something bad enough the universe will conspire to get it for you so if there's four billion neurons every second that are aligned with your conscious intention uh get out of the way because it's going to manifest it's just not that's a read by the ant and the elephant and it kind of explains no, no, that, no, no.
0: That I mean, you've got me than... thinking about all the things i've studied all the books i've got up there my napoleon hill comes straight to my mind nlp tony robbins and yeah. all those sort of all things. that
2: it's, but all, it's a it's, bit
0: yeah. more difficult to do it yeah than they say don't they and uh, i don't know yeah. the alchemist i struggled a bit with that to be honest it seemed a bit woo-woo to me but um perhaps perhaps i need to read it again it's on the shelf
2: i i think i only read it once and it was a parable it was nice and uh you know that my kids they said dad there's this film called the secret, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's this, uh, you know, you can kind of skim the white caps and then, and then think you're, you're actually, uh, snorkeling, but you're not, I mean, it's, it's this, uh, it's this dedication to a finding out what that emotional buzz is like what the emotional buzz, the thought of marching in the opening ceremonies, for example, Mm. was so fundamentally moving. Like I could physically react from that. Do you have the emotional buzz from this aspiration that you have? And can you combine, and this is all I learned this from Tony Robbins uh, and others, is can you combine the pain if this didn't happen, right? So the aspirational notion and the pain of it not marching in the opening ceremonies, what would that regret feel like? Because you have felt it already and it's never going to happen again. So all this... Um, uh, just being very conscious about what is going to align your ant and elephant and have them move in the same direction is, is critical to be able to set the stage for your beliefs, attitudes, and truths that will then set up the judgments that will then influence your actions. Um, and so it doesn't have to be woo woo. Just be the architect for your dominant thought and that what you believe to be true. The ways to make it, uh, um, infuse into your being is to bring in the five senses and then the emotion attached to that, uh, that, that just creates an experience. And that's uh, part of the human condition. Let's say somebody says something to you negative. Uh, you're, they say something so mean that you don't know what to say at that moment. You go, I, I, but guess what you do? You replay it in your mind, right? You go, Oh, Oh, I know what I should have said. And then you replay it in your mind and you experience it, what that felt like, how much it hurt. And then you're staying up at night thinking about it. You know, It's like this whole thing. So you've experienced it a hundred times, a thousand times, yet you've, uh, it only happened once. Well, why not flip that human condition and use it to your advantage? Why not experience something that has an emotional quotient attached to it where just the thought of it just has this alignment of 2000 neurons and 4 billion neurons in the same direction that's when extraordinary things happen at least at least uh, my experience and i've replicated it over and over again uh in business and, and climbing mm-hmm. mountains all that
0: that's fantastic lots of things are coming to mind but we're running a little bit short of time tell us about the earthquake how did you uh, how did you fit the earthquake it sounded like you wrote you wrote the ant and the elephant 15 years before the earthquake how does that fit in because we're all uh, we're all going on amazon to buy it afterwards <laughs>
2: Well, the, the earthquake, uh, the concept came up quite, quite readily, maybe seven years ago, uh, nine, well now, whatever, 12 years ago, but, uh, eight years ago. So I had, um, I had experienced a financial earthquake, uh, in 2008, uh, 2007, I took, a lot of money and and even borrowed on it to make an investment and took a lot of money and made another investment at the same time, knowing I was on top of the world. I mean, I, I could sell my way out of this. Um, but I got caught with my pants down financially. And, um, and three, four, five years later, I was still in this financial mess. And I couldn't figure out why a guy that was able to get to the olympic games in four years couldn't figure out this financial in fact i was sitting at this this desk right here and i was in tears because i thought i was letting everybody down there was this vortex of, of of um negativity you know and uh and so i had the concept quite quickly the opening line of the book there's no linear way out of chaos it was financial chaos and there was no way. And Tim, uh, Tim was a very solid and true friend. We would meet and he said, how's it going? I said, I, I can't figure this out. Uh, but I did. <laughs> and I figured out uh, what are the universal truths? Like if somebody loses a child and somebody goes bankrupt and somebody gets a divorce, what are the universal truths with all their experience in terms of superseding that earthquake? Getting past those earthquakes, getting past the paralyzing stuckness of it all. And um, that's how the book, The Earthquake, came, came about. I was able to come up with this formula. I'll just give you a, a, a brief uh, a metaphor of how this all came together. It's a relationship between your conscious and subconscious mind. If we're in a relationship and we're in the same vehicle, which the ant and the elephant are, but we each have a steering wheel, we will never, ever, ever have alignment if we both have steering wheels. We have to create a third reality, a third steering wheel that works with both of us. Because the ant is going to charge down. I can willpower, I can make this, I can manifest this, I can create this, I can, you know, be the architect of my dominant thought. But unless the subconscious mind is also on board and aligned, uh, that means it's still on the steering wheel trying to say, no, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it, you know, and so Having that, uh, that metaphor really brought this book to life in terms of the relationship between our conscious and subconscious mind and how in a dysfunctional relationship, things can get better. Um, and I, funny enough, concurrently, my marriage got better <laughs> by f- figuring out uh, this dysfunction of my conscious and subconscious mind. So,
0: Fantastic. Vince, we're almost out of time. One last tip. For 2023, for people on this call, people watching the recording on YouTube
2: or on listening to it on Spotify. I uh, just simplified Do not make any decisions based on fear. If you are afraid, then you are, it's getting larger if you run away from it. So stepping towards fear, it gets smaller. It gets manageable. And whether it's jumping on stage to save Salman Rushdie, or it's uh, trying a new project that you just don't uh, feel comfortable doing. Go towards, never make any decisions based on fear.
0: That's fantastic. Vince Pocenti, thank you so much for joining Monday Night Live. And I would last the members of Monday Night Live to give you the vote of thanks in the normal way on Gallery View. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Will you stay on for a little while to uh, ask yeah, any uh, off got- the record questions? Plenty of time. Sure. Thanks. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're watching this on the uh, Negotiators podcast or listening to it on Spotify, please uh, buy Vince's book, which you will find on Amazon or his books because there's a few of them. But the Ant and the Elephant and the Earthquake are the two to start off with. Vince, thanks so much.